0: The Bible reading this morning is from Luke chapter 11, verse 1 through 2:13. 13. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers,
1: Well, it is great to be here finally, and uh, hooray, hooray, hooray. Um, uh, You will learn to, I I sometimes say things inappropriate, sorry, I said something inappropriate in that last interview, I apologise. Anyway, um, we remember we need the Lord's help, let's pray. Father in heaven, may the the only things that I say that come out of my mouth be helpful and edifying. We place ourselves under your word. And we, we uh, look to you to teach us. So Heavenly Father, open our eyes, open our minds to you and give us humble hearts before you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'd like to welcome um, our little support team from Trinity City. Oh, sorry, Trinity Church, Adelaide. That's right. Oh, not till October. And anyone else here uh, who's here for the first time, g'day. Uh, we begin we begin together. We begin with the Lord's Prayer. Now that might seem an odd place to begin because don't we know it? Haven't half of us been rattling it off ad nauseum since we were children? Why not begin with something a bit more gripping uh, like how Jesus totally transforms people's lives? Like the work of the Spirit, like the, you know, the mighty promise of the resurrection, like the Great Commission, like uh, the promise of Jesus coming again. Why not begin there? Why begin with something we know, Jesus' teaching on prayer? Because, as God reminds us, we're not God. He is. He is. Which means anything that we do together in this next chapter of course, can only be done through him. We are dependent upon him. And also because we're beginning here because his heart, you see, for the hills is bigger than mine. It's bigger than yours. It's bigger than our collective hearts. His vision for what he will do through this church is bigger than ours. Whatever growth we will have will only come because God brings the growth. And so how we begin is where we must, on our knees, before him, humble before him, depending on him, calling upon him, on our knees and with our eyes open, our eyes open to his agenda, for his vision for the world, looking for him to be at work amongst us. So we begin on our knees, which is why we need Jesus to teach us about prayer. Isn't it significant that of all the different areas of discipleship, the disciples asked for help in this area only? They knew it was their weak point. And Jesus' answer was, a, well, this prayer that we rattle off, we think we know it well, but do we? Do we really? You rattle it off. Do you know what it means? Hallowed be your name. Is that praise of God or is it asking God for something? Your kingdom come. What's that mean in the Adelaide Hills? What do you mean when you pray that? Are we praying for Jesus' return or are we praying for something else? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's that really asking? Because isn't God's sovereign will always done because God is God. He is all powerful. And in what way is God's will done differently in heaven versus on earth? Maybe we don't know the Lord's Prayer as well as we thought. Maybe we need Jesus actually to teach us how to pray. The disciples saw Jesus pray and when they saw him pray they saw something someone who prayed differently uh, his prayer wasn't all spontaneous he was deliberate from verse 1 jesus would go to a specific place for the purpose of praying but his prayers were effective uh, when jesus prayed things happened remember how the spirit descended on Jesus like a dove at his baptism. The detail which we miss is that that happened when Jesus was praying. Uh, or remember when Jesus was transfigured on that mountain, his face changed and became like the sun, his clothes white like light. That happened when Jesus was praying. But the truly different aspect to Jesus praying was that he called God Father. Now, we miss seeing how radical that is because the words are just drilled in, aren't they? You know, our Father in heaven. When you pray, say our Father in heaven. But before this moment, to pray, to presume to pray in such an intimate, privileged way, it just wasn't done. You search the Old Testament. Uh, we see that God is called many things, but only ever Father, once or twice, And never validly, although in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 19, God himself longed for the day when he would be called father. And the only exception is once in Psalm 89, where the promised Christ who would come, he would call God father. And that's it in the Old Testament. And then lo and behold, well, that's exactly how Jesus prays. Just in the chapter before Luke, chapter 10, verse 21, the disciples hear Jesus praising God, saying, I praise you. Father. Now, this was different. This was astounding. When Jesus prayed, he prayed as if he and God were on personal and intimate terms, relating to God as if he was his Father. No wonder the disciples heard Jesus praying and said, Lord, teach us to pray. (laughs) But the value to this to us is even more. You see, by laying out in the Lord's Prayer what To pray for what's Jesus doing is he's teaching us what God's desires are God's chiefest desires the things uppermost on God's heart the things personal to him and the power of this is that it changes us because when we think about what God desires and then we ask these things in prayer for ourselves Well, very, very soon they become the things we want as well. So, by teaching us and us thinking on these things and us praying them, you see, our desires then come into line with God's desires. We desire God's desires. In other words, take to heart Jesus' teaching And he'll transform our hearts. Jesus teaches us that there are four things that God desires of us when we pray. The first is relationship. Uh, From Psalm 89, only the coming Christ would be worthy to call God Father. And yet the staggering, blow your hair back, close your gaping mouth, pick up your jaw from the ground where it has fallen, lesson that Jesus gives is when you pray, say, In one word, the gospel is now made real, uh, that through God the Son, sinners and self-confessed rebels and natural enemies of God like you and me, we can call God Father, meaning not only does God make us acceptable to God and reconciled to him, but through Jesus the Son, we become adopted into God's family with all the privilege and all the status of being his children. To Jesus' disciples, you see, uh, God is, well, he's not just creator, he's not just judge, he's not just saviour, he is father. That single word speaks of a relationship of privilege and status and freedom And intimacy and openness and favor which all comes to us through the son you can't get it any other way but it's the great privilege of everyone who believes in the son to be able to call God father and Jesus says when you pray pray this together our father right Collective, it's corporate. It's a corporate privilege. Pray together. It's God's desire that we actively live out the relationship of father to children that he has called us into. We are to call on God our father. He's not against us. He's our father. He's for us. He's not uninterested, can't be bothered. He's our father. We have his attention. Prayer is an a lifeless duty. We get the Lord's Prayer wrong, don't we? You know, so many times we just rattle it through like it's a formulaic thing you just say, like a mantra. No, 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 no. That misses the whole point. Prayer is not like that. It's not a lifeless duty. It is a relationship. God desires this for us. Relationship with us through his son. And that's why the next thing that Jesus teaches us to pray, in fact, the first thing that we we're to ask for is not what we want for ourselves, but what God wants for Himself. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, may your will be done. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, this seems very selfish of God, doesn't it? As if somehow God thinks that He is more special. He is. Uh, he's God. Uh, but it's not selfish two reasons why first of all our father's desires for himself overflow to others for their good so in praying to god we end up praying for others for their good also this is part of being in a personal relationship with god you know if you're in on personal intimate terms with someone they share with you what's most important to them their desires of their hearts And they want you to own them for yourself as well. That's what it means to be in a personal and intimate relationship with someone. God does the same here, all right? And also, praying first about God lifts our vision. You know, if God hadn't told us these things, what would our prayers look like? Boring, like our normal shopping list, you know, sort of prayers. Lord, help me in my exam. You know, help my son and daughter to make a friend. Help me find keys. Now these, sorry, they're important, aren't they? <laughs> and it's the privilege of anyone who's a child to be able to bring these before their Heavenly Father. But prayer is so much bigger than that. When you pray, first, open your eyes to what our Father wants of himself. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Hello, that's not a word we use now. It means sanctify, that's not a word we use now, which means set it apart as holy. Holy is not a word we use now. But it means, Lord, may your name, your reputation, your character be put aside as different, as set apart, as significant, different. May people do that to your name, meaning your reputation, your character. So in Exodus, the Lord passed by Moses and proclaimed his name. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. So the name of God is his character, right? His reputation. Lord, may your name, may who you are be set apart in people's hearts and honored by them so that when people hear from you, they don't, you know, they don't, curl their lip in disdain. They don't mentally change channels. They don't swear under their breath. No, when they hear of your name, they delight in who you are. They erupt in praise. That's what it means for God's name to be hallowed. You see what this is? This is a mission prayer, isn't it? Hallowed be your name. You can pray this prayer for the people in your school or your university or your workplace. You can pray it for people in your family you can pray it for people in your suburb, and I hope you do. Lord, may the people of Aldgate or Bridgewater or Crafers or Nan, or Sterling marvel at you and set you apart in their hearts as someone worthy to be praised, as someone who is special. Father, may your name be hallowed. How does God hallow his name? Back in the time of the Exodus, the Lord hallowed his name by saving people out of slavery before all the nations and all their gods, doing it amazingly. So when Rahab, the Canaanite, heard of this, she hallowed God's name. She wanted to swap sides, right? In Solomon's day, the Lord hallowed his name in the sight of the nations by making Solomon's kingdom the most prosperous one on earth and then dwelling with God. God's people in a temple that Solomon built. He only did it for them. So that when the Queen of Sheba heard about this, she packed up on her camels and she traveled a long way through the desert to check it out for herself and then she became a believer. Now, both in the Exodus and in the kingdom under Solomon, these are illustrations, if you like, to point us to how God hallows his name today. That is, through people. Coming to Christ through being forgiven, through being saved from their sin. This is a greater exodus, right? Through God dwelling with us through his spirit, giving us a new heart. That's a better temple. Through people coming into the kingdom of God, better than Solomon's, right? Under Christ the King. This is how God hallows his name today. That's what changes someone uh, so that they praise God when they, in their hearts when they hear his name instead of cursing him. That's how God hallows his name and that's his chiefest desire. And God wants it to become ours. God desires that we desire this desire of his and that we would come on our knees, eyes open, asking for this to happen. Father, hallowed be your name through this church through us in the hills. And then your kingdom come. And yes, this is a prayer for the king of God's kingdom to return when every knee will bow before Jesus. Of course, this is praying for that, but it's more than that. It's a prayer for God to act now, that even now people would enthrone Christ in their hearts as their king. May your kingdom come in their lives. May they come under the rule of Christ. The loving rule. This, therefore, is a mission prayer. You think of the people in your street. Think of them. Your neighbours whom you know by name. I think of the people in my street. May your kingdom come in Toulaby Avenue. May Joe and Chris and Kathy and Jamie and Melly and Lisa and Phil, may they enthrone Christ as their Lord and King. That's the prayer. And it's God's desire And Jesus tells us to pray for it because God desires that we share his desire and ask him for it. We begin on our knees with our eyes open, eyes wider open still. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now this comes from Matthew's account, not Luke's account. It's a prayer that what our father wants, his will, would increasingly be done on earth. On the wider scale, it's a prayer that God's plans, not the plans of the nations or world leaders, would prevail. God's sovereign will for the world. On the smaller scale, it's a prayer that God wants what God wants would increasingly be done by us in our own lives. But of course, you know, praying that God's will would be done in our lives requires us to know God's will for us, doesn't it? much of which is told in the Bible. So praying may your will be done for ourselves is a prayer that we would increasingly obey what God says he wants of us, even if it's different to what we might naturally want. And so therefore it's a humble prayer. It's the prayer that Jesus himself prayed in Gethsemane, isn't it? On the night before he died. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It's a prayer that in our lives, God would be God, not us. And we can gladly pray it because he's our father and we trust him. Then comes the qualifier, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we wonder, well, how is God's will done differently in heaven versus on earth? And maybe we get confused about what we're asking. You know, on a few occasions in the Bible, the curtains of heaven are drawn back and we are given a window into what happens in heaven as we gather on earth. Job 1 and 2, Revelation 5 to 8, 1 Kings 22. When the curtains are drawn back, what do we see? It's like two, you know, two screens on your telly. You, know, you see what's happening in heaven and what's happening on the ground. In heaven, God is always in charge. And the heavenly beings are all obedient to him, even Satan and the lying spirits. They cannot go beyond the limits that God grants. In heaven, God is always obeyed. So when we pray, may your will be done here on earth, just like it's done in heaven, it's a prayer that on earth people would become willingly obedient to God. It is therefore a prayer for conversion. But it's a prayer also that God would restrain the hand of evil. This is God's desire. He desires that we desire it as well. And that by coming to him on our knees, eyes open, we help bring it about. These are God's desires for himself. Now, now we get to our own needs. Is there room within Jesus' teaching on prayer for this? Yes. Yes. Third point, Jesus teaches us that God desires us to express our dependence upon him. Give us today our daily bread. The literal sense of it is give us today the bread we need for tomorrow. Meaning this is a prayer we are meant to pray daily. Every day we are dependent upon God. Every day we are to ask him to supply our needs. Even when... We live as we do when, you know, you need food, you go to Woolies, you bust your hand, you go down the road and they send you a hospital and it's done. You know, our needs are so easily met, but yet we are still dependent on him. Are there any farmers here? Now, anyone self-employed? Okay, you know that just because you have needs met today does not mean that you will necessarily have needs met tomorrow. It's those of us who are on regular incomes employed by people like you who don't have to worry, we're guaranteed a regular income, right? We become complacent. But you know, you know that uh, nothing's for certain, all right? Um, Things happen, an accident, a redundancy, a gas pipeline explosion, a tornado in the mid-north which wipes out South Australia's power supply. Our needs can be so quickly cut off, can't they? But God is over the supply chain. In the end, he supplies our needs. Pray with dependence, God desires we do. He desires we play in relationship. He desires we pray his desires for himself. He desires we pray with dependence upon him. And finally, he desires that when we pray, we fight the good fight. The last three lines of the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil, they all presume that we are in ongoing spiritual warfare and that the way we fight is through prayer. When Jesus says, when you pray, say, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, he tells us that our ongoing spiritual needs are to confess our sins and our ongoing spiritual needs are to forgive other people because other people will sin against us. So that's what we need to do. And he tells us that our ongoing spiritual threats are not to confess our sins and not to forgive other people. We think, hang on, why do I need to keep confessing my sins? If I'm a follower of Jesus, aren't I already forgiven? That's true. It's not as if you're going to miss out on heaven if there's, you, know, you die and there's one sin that's been un- unconfessed. But forgiveness brings us into a relationship with our Heavenly Father and it's always right to live openly and honestly before the Lord. So if you've never come clean with God... Your first spiritual need and your greatest one remains to come clean with him and ask his forgiveness. And what a joy that because Jesus died in your place and paid the debt of your sin, that when you come to God, he can release you from that debt and he can declare you forgiven. What a wonderful thing. But having done that, our ongoing need is to confess our sins. Now, why? Because we can't just walk in relationship with our father and hold on to sin in our heart, which we know that he hates. You just can't do it. It's like trying to pretend there's not an elephant in the room when there is. It needs to be dealt with. Because sin that's not dealt with ruins open fellowship. It's true for human relationships. It's true for our relationship with our father. You ignore sin, what happens? Suddenly your prayer and your praise, they they become lip service. That's all. There's no heart in them. You're just doing it to somehow appease him. Fight the good fight by looking to your Father. Father, forgive us our sins, for we forgive those who sin against us. The next spiritual threat is temptation again it's fought by prayer when you say when you pray say father lead us not into temptation now this is not to say that god's default mode is to lead us into temptation we're asking god please don't do that no 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 <laughs> it's a recognition that our natural drift will be towards temptation and it's a recognition that we are not strong enough to deal with that ourselves and it's recognition that the way to deal with temptation is to ask God to lead us to go a different way, lead us not lead us not into temptation, take us in a different direction. Now, if you have ever prayed like this at the moment of temptation, you will know that having prayed, it is impossible to give yourself to an indulgent sin if you've prayed for help in this because somehow something changes inside. The temptation is still there, but it loses its power. It's like a balloon that's kind of run out of air and it's gone all floppy and then drops to the ground. Because our desire, you see, is when you pray this, you realize, actually, what I really want is not to live like that. I want you to lead me. And that's your greater desire. Hebrews chapter 4 exhorts us to approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We fight temptation with prayer. The final spiritual threat is evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Literally, it's the evil, deliver us from the evil, which may sound like evil acts, like suicide bombings, But most likely, it's deliver us from the evil one behind those attacks and our temptations. Deliver us from the evil one behind our temptations. That is Satan. He is the one who will try to cause us to stumble. He is the one who will try and cause us to deny Christ and forget God and sin against God and wound our conscience. Jesus is teaching us we cannot fight him by ourselves, The way we fight him is through prayer by calling on God our Father because he is the one who has acted to save us. He sent his son to pay the price to redeem us out of Satan's kingdom. He sent his son to bind up Satan and to take away his power of accusing us. And he rose his son to life again and lifted him to heaven to have an ongoing ministry to us as our high priest to help us in our time of trial. Right? This is how we begin, on our knees, eyes open, praying in relationship, desiring God's desires for himself, praying dependently and fighting the good fight. Now, you know, if we naively had thought that prayer was just praying for our physical needs then we'd have been blind to the first three things Jesus had us pray for. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And also the last three. Forgive us our sins, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. If we thought that prayer was just about bringing to God our own shopping list, we've neglected, you see, what our Father wants and our ongoing spiritual battle that we're engaged in. So you see then, Jesus really has taught us how to pray, hasn't he? But some of us won't be able to because deep down we either think we don't need God or we think he's not going to respond if I pray because he's not interested or he can't be bothered. And that is why Jesus doesn't stop with the end of the Lord's Prayer. He goes on to tell that story about the man who goes to his friend at midnight and shamelessly asks him to give him three loaves of bread, even though he knew that request would cause a huge bother to his friend. The point of the story is not to say that God is like the reluctant friend who really doesn't want to get up out of bed. The point is to say that if even that reluctant friend who didn't want to be bothered granted that man that request, then how much more will... God, your father, who is on your side, who, you know, you have his ear. How much more will he grant you your request? So Jesus says, be shamelessly bold. Pray, expecting God to respond. Ask, it will be given to you. Seek, you shall find. Knock, the door shall be opened to you. And given the requests, of course, which the son has just taught us to pray in the Lord's prayer. When we ask for those things. God's chiefest desires, then he will give you what you ask for. He'll even give his spirit to those who ask him. He's not cruel. The son says the father will give us his spirit. He will give us himself. And that's why we should pray together. Because what makes us a church and not a club is God he is our God we are his people and we long for what he wants and we're dependent upon him and we need him to help us to fight the good fight not each other so that God would build his kingdom amongst us we must begin on our knees And I'm proposing that we do. Maybe not literally on our knees where I'm thinking of. Sterling Oval, in two Sundays time, in the afternoon. We've booked it. We'll be meeting for prayer. We're beginning outside of this building so we remember that we have a role to the hills. We do not pray just for ourselves. We pray for all those God has a heart for Amen Amen Amen.